Welcome to Parenting Teens with Dr. Cam, a podcast about navigating adolescence without losing our minds. Each week, I guide you around the teenage landmines with practical tips, simple solutions, and words of encouragement. I'm your host, Dr. Cam. Let's get on with the show. Hello, parents. Welcome back. Today, we're diving into a concerning trend, teen school refusal. Since the pandemic, school avoidances cases have doubled, escalating into a crisis that affects families across the nation. If you're worried that your teen's increasing absences will impact their academic performance, social development, and mental well-being, you're in the right place. We're joining us today is an esteemed expert in this area, Dr. Jennifer Beanstalk. As a licensed psychologist and director of clinical training at the Center for Anxiety and Behavioral Change in Rockville, Maryland, Dr. Beanstalk is here to explain this concerning issue and how parents can best support our teenagers struggling with school avoidance. Welcome, Dr. Beanstalk. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, good morning. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, this is a hot topic. So let's just start with a backstory. How did you and what kind of inspired you to focus on teen anxiety and focusing on school refusal specifically? Sure, sure. Um, So my background is in treating anxiety disorders, um, primarily uh, working with individuals on the OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder spectrum. um, And that's where I did a a majority of my training. But over the years and through working at various uh, mostly private practices in the Maryland, Virginia, DC area. Um, the current practice that I'm in now, we specialize in treating anxiety-based school refusal. So it just sort of was this happening of treating anxiety disorders and then just seeing the um, unfortunate sort of overwhelming um, presence that is anxiety-based school refusal. And so just as a clinic and just as a clinician, it seemed to really fit well just with my 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 niche and where I uh, where I tend to practice. Yeah, and I'm imagining that your cases are increasing. Have you seen a big increase since we've gotten back from the pandemic? Yes, yeah. yes, we have. And it's interesting though, we're seeing a a sort of different presentation okay. in school refusal. So pre-pandemic, um, and this is something I, I maybe we'll we'll get into a little bit more, but um, something to keep in mind about school refusal is that it's not just that your, your kid just doesn't want to go to school or they can't or they won't. There's almost always, if not always, I'm not going to say always, um, but something else, whether it's social anxiety or just generalized anxiety, um, some sort of family systems issue, there's another comorbid diagnosis that is sort of fueling the school refusal. So um, if you think of a casserole, right, there's so many different ingredients. You wouldn't just go to your doctor and be like, I'm allergic to casseroles, right? right. If you had like a break, <laughs> right? So here we would really want to dissect and like find like what's the specific ingredient that you are allergic to and then treat that in sort of the context of general school refusal. So anyway, so um, post-pandemic, we're seeing a lot more individuals who fall on the autism spectrum. Mm. Um being more of the um, kind of typical person who is refusing school. So if you think about someone who's on the autism spectrum, maybe pre-pandemic, they've been sort of integrated their entire life. They've been able to sort of make do with um, a lot of like sensory stimulation, things that are happening. Pandemic hits, they go home, their ideal environment is sort of created where they're, they may be at home, it's quiet, low sensory stimulation. They can kind of do things on their own schedule. 
And then post-pandemic, they're thrown back into this and it's just complete sensory overload. And so a lot of the school refusal cases that we are seeing at our practice, um, a lot of those teens also possibly, not all, uh, but have either some sensory sensitivities or are possibly on the autism spectrum. But yes, it's um, unfortunate, a big thing that has really, um, really shown up post-pandemic. Yeah. And what are some of the other reasons? And I like the fact that you're explaining there's more to it than just not going. Because I think a lot of times, um, and what I've even heard in schools is the, the suggestion or the recommendation they give is just make them go. Yes. And I struggle with that because if we're just making them go, we're not addressing why they're not going and it's creating a lot more problems because now kids don't have a voice and now we're having fights every day and we're not addressing the issue. So what are some of the other issues if our kids don't fall on the spectrum? And I'm seeing this a lot with kids that aren't on the spectrum. Like what are some of the other reasons why school refusal has increased? Yeah. Um, A big one is social anxiety. Um, And again, kind of following the same template of, you know, if someone had social anxiety, but they were sort of in the rhythm and in the routine of doing it every single day and confronting social situations, essentially doing exposure, um, which we'll talk talk about too, Um, you know, bring them home and then try to put them back in a school setting, that anxiety is shooting through the roof, right? They are back to engaging with peers on a regular basis, teachers, other staff, and that can be really overwhelming to the nervous system. So social anxiety is a big one. Um, Trauma could be a reason um, that a teen, you know, presents with anxiety-based school refusal. Um, Unfortunately, you know, if something happens either in the school with a peer, um, anyone in the school setting, um, Mm -hmm. they're now, again, they're confronted with that on a daily basis, and that can be really, really challenging. Um, Perfectionism, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, I see that a lot. (laughs) Um, a lot of students, you know, the, um, and I guess it's worth to say that, um, school refusal can look, uh, like you're, you know, avoiding like the school altogether, the setting, um, itself, it could also be the work, um, Mm -hmm. students who don't want to do the work or can't do the work again, there is, uh, possibly a a deeper rooted concern or fear that, you know, if I don't get it hundred percent correct, or if I don't put my, my best effort, or if I, um, if I can't, express exactly how I want to say what I want to say. Well, I just, I'm too anxious and then I'm just not going to do it at all. Um, so a lot of perfectionist tendencies, uh, pop up too, as, as some other reasons why we may see school refusal. Yeah. I, I see that one a lot too. And I think that's one of the ones I hear as well is that, and it, it sounds like laziness or a lack of motivation, which I think that's what kind of parents are trying to fix. Yeah. And that's rarely ever the case. Yeah, that that's the great point. It's really rarely ever the case. I mean, not to say that it doesn't happen, but usually there's something else there. Um, most teens that we work with will say, like, I want to go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, this is really hard. And they recognize that they're falling behind. And, yeah. you know, there's the possibility of them having to do summer school or even redo an entire grade, um, which in some ways can kind of fuel you in one direction to say like, all right, let's get moving and motivated to try to work on this. But for some, it does increase the anxiety too. And they, they Mm -hmm. feel really, really stuck. Um, so, you know, kind of coming up with a treatment plan that really addresses again, those kind of casserole ingredients, what is at the core confronting those issues, um, is really the best way to make sure that they are, you know, on the right track to get back into school. 
Yeah. So let's, let's ask one thing. First of all, when does it become a problem? Our kids will might miss a few days. They're overwhelmed. They're stressed out. They don't feel well. They may skip a few days. Yeah. And does it become a school refusal problem versus I need a mental health day? Because we do need those. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm sure there is a statistic out there that I don't have (laughs) off the top of my head, but you know, I I think a lot of this goes to also like, you know, your kid. And if, you know, there is one day where, okay, you know, I, I just, I had this big AP exam or, you know, study guide or something. And I'm just, I'm so exhausted from all these things. Like I just need a day. And then there's not a whole lot of resistance going back into school the next day. We're probably okay. It's the repeated mm-hmm. uh, avoidance of really like, I, I, you know, not going to school, really falling behind on the work. Um, you know, we've worked with, with students over the years where, you know, they've missed over half of the year yeah. um, and probably even more. So I would say just, you know, looking for that, um, you know, one day, two day, look at the other variables that are at play, um, other stressors, you know, teens these days are involved in so many other extracurriculars, the college preparedness, uh, pressure, all yeah. of that really is. We're <laughs> entering that this year, big time. Yeah. Oh so, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. And, um, you know, you and I are both in the, uh, you know, DC Metro area and mm-hmm. it is this way in a lot of other places too, but the pressure starts very early. Um, yeah. I hear that from a lot of teens that they just, feel that. So, um, you know, I would say it becomes problematic when, you know, there often comes a point where teens fall so behind that they're, it, the work is like really building and it's, you know, and we talk with schools about other plans to try to just keep them caught up. Um, but yeah, when it's not just like, I just need a day. Yeah. So we've got, and I know parents sometimes are fearful of allowing their kids even a day, because they're going, oh my gosh, if I allow them, will this mean that they're going to just start doing it all the time? Yeah. Um. So I think what you said is, you know, you try it once. If it is a problem to get back, then it's it's a problem. And there's there's that underlying reason anyway. So it's not as if, oh my gosh, I just opened that can of worms. It's more like, okay, now I know there's something we need to address. Yeah. And a lot of teens, I think, have the um, the voice and the awareness to, to recognize when they truly just need a day, you know, it's yeah. the push exams, um, something else is going on and they're just like, okay, I just need that time to kind of regroup versus, um, it, it just, I, I guess I'm, <laughs> I'm yeah. not putting it clinically well, but there's just a different presentation presentation when it comes to school refusal. Um, sometimes it can look like it's just this like defiant, like, Nope, I'm not going. Mm-hmm. Um, which is very different than the recognition of there's just a lot happening right now. And this is just a, a reset for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So our kids are saying, no, they're refusing to go. Yeah. What do we do? Yeah. So sort of a, a cardinal rule for parents is to keep this idea of compassionate firmness in mind, mm-hmm. right? So um, with all anxiety work, we have to be very careful not to reinforce avoidance or anxiety, right? Yeah. So we sort of joke at our clinic that we don't treat anxiety, we treat avoidance because really that's the behavior, right? That's the thing that when most people are anxious or uncomfortable, um, uncomfortable in some way, they want to avoid or escape that thing. Um, so we are treating the, the avoidance here. Um, but that compassionate firmness is really sort of a guiding principle that we want to be firm with 
our kids that, you know, when they're not in school, and again, this is like different from taking that mental health day, but if they are truly refusing when they are at home, they are not to be doing anything that they wouldn't be doing in school otherwise. Right. So staying home doesn't mean kick up my feet, get the iPad out, watch Netflix all day, play video games, you know, sleep, right? When you're at school, what are you doing? You're learning, you're reading, you're doing other things. You're not napping, you're not playing games. So we want to create that same structure at home so that they don't think that home is, you know, Disney world. Um, That compassionate firmness is setting the, setting the limit and the boundary that, you know what, you're home. This is what you're kind of allowed to do. I, I know this is really hard for you. So using a lot of validation, not reassurance, right? Acknowledging what they're going through is challenging and hard and being really firm and holding that boundary. And if there's a lot of like, no, but I, you know, I really want to do this and, you know, but like, I'm not doing anything otherwise. So like, why can't I just watch movies all day? Um, being really firm with that. And, you know, creating that, like, we don't want them to be home. We want them to know that like being home isn't fun. And (laughs) (laughs) right. I will tell you, most teens don't think being at home is fun. (laughs) Yeah, If you're you're talking with, you know, someone who's, who's cool, the idea is this like safe, where they can do whatever they want and really the thing that's making them feel most anxious. Um, So we want them to get back into school. Right. So um, compassionate firmness, really be, you know, making sure that they're not doing other things. Um, we, we coach parents a lot, um, to kind of brace themselves for what's called an extinction burst. So we see this in little kids all the time, right? You tell a little one that they can't have a certain toy or like the kind of old example is like the, you know, chocolate bar at the grocery checkout and they start escalating and escalating Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they explode. Right. And when that explosion happens, a lot of times parents are like, fine, here, just take the thing that you want and like settle down. Okay. Well now that kid knows, Hmm, like I just have to go from my calmest of calms to my most max energy outburst. And I'm going to get what I want, right? That burst, right. Where they're, um, they're not getting what they want. They're doing everything in their power to try and get what they want. And as parents, it's really important to like, let that happen without giving in to the demand, right. Sort of letting it ride through, ride, ride it out. Um, eventually they run out of their kind of like internal resources and tools, um, and then eventually calm down. Right. Yeah. It's important not to interrupt that burst. Um, cause you know, setting limits with teens on not using your phone, not using your iPad, um, playing video games, they may not be happy about that. Yeah. Um, so that compassionate firmness again, of just holding your ground, being kind, understanding, but also these are the rules. Uh, I think this is, I love the way you're putting this. And I think this is so key because this is the biggest struggle. Cause I hear a lot of parents say, my kids manipulate me. They're mm-hmm. manipulative. And my question is, why are you letting them manipulate you? Mm-hmm. They can't manipulate you unless you let them. Mm-hmm. And I think what you said is exactly where we falter is they get to the point that they, they learn where our limit is. They push past it and we're done. And so I think part of that is, and what you said, it's about being calm, 
It's mm-hmm. about, we can't buy into that emotion because once we do, now they really are manipulating us because they're controlling our emotions. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's and like, it is. Whew, that's such a, that's such a like powerful word. Yeah. I think, you know, to, I'm a parent, my kids are a lot younger. Um, but you know, we all get to that point where, you know, if, your kid is home and you're trying to work or do something else. Like it seems really easy just to be like, here, like take this, like I got to get to do my thing. Um, so it is a lot of work for parents, um, to kind of hold that boundary that is set and understand that it's not that necessarily your kid is being manipulative, but like they, you know, it's, it's sort of what they want. Right. right, Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's get to school refusal again, because now we're, we're going, okay. We know not to make home this Disneyland where yep. now that's going to be so much more desirable than school. Yep. That's still not working. Yeah. They, yep. They're still not going. We're still arguing every day. And now we're getting worried because we can't seem to get them. Yeah. What do we do now? Yeah. So so the, the parent part of treating school refusal behavior is really only one piece of it. So in order for, for us to really treat school refusal and be and be effective with it, it has to be sort of this like wraparound approach between treating the individual, so the student themselves, um, and that is in the form of individual therapy and possibly even group. We, um, at mm-hmm. our clinic, we have a group for school refusal students. Nice. Um, so it's, you know, a, a lot of teens who are kind of going through the same things. Uh, again, like their struggles may be different, but like the, the common thread is at their school refusal. So individual um, group parent work. So oftentimes we work or most of the time, if not always, we work um, with the parents to kind of help set some of these um, you know, set some of these boundaries, teach them, give them the education on, you know, um, uh, reinforcement uh, patterns and behaviors and like kind of the do's and don'ts of that. And then collaboration with the school. That one is, they're all challenging and they're all so important, but working yeah. with um, the school, you know, identifying if there is a counselor, advisor, a teacher, someone who can be sort of a, a main advocate for the student um, to really help them. Um, in my experience, a lot of uh, individuals who are you know, students who are school refusing often have either a 504 plan or an IEP already in place um, to help them with, you know, various accommodations for, you know, other academic challenges. And so that's a great place to start with the school is to kind of pinpoint the person who's, you know, helping with that plan um, or like a trusted, um, you know, teacher advisor, someone at the school. Um, So yes, multi, multi layer. And there's like different components to kind of do within each of those. So let's go into the parent part. You said there's do's and don'ts. Give us a few of the top don'ts that you commonly see us do. Um, So the one that we sort of already talked about, which is like, okay, you're not going to school, like do whatever you want, right? Right. Sleep. Um, So really helping kind of create some structure. um, That's really important. Um, when it comes to like doing the work, like a lot of school refusal students, you know, they've not only are they not going to school, but they're also not doing the work. So a lot of times parents will, you know, try to help them to like catch up and mm-hmm. work for them. And I always tell parents like, you already went to high school. <laughs> you yeah. It's not your grade. Right. It's not your grade. And it's one of, I think the hardest things for parents to see is the possibility that their child may fail and not yeah. like fail as in, 
you know, they're done for, but it's just this, they're not going to succeed in the way that maybe they had um, hoped they would, expected them to. Um, so really allowing their kid to do the work, um, you know, that's a big part of this. So kind of standing back. And, and again, we want to provide guidance and support. Um, if they come to you with like a math problem, right? You're not going to do the math problem for them because then they're not learning anything, right? Um, again, just like another kind of metaphor, if you know a dog is coming to you and like begging for food, if you throw that, fine, just like take take it, like go away now. Yeah. What they're going to learn is that they just have to keep coming back and you'll keep giving them food to go away, right? Yeah. So allowing students to fumble a little bit and to know that that is okay and that they are super resilient and will be able to bounce back. Um, that that's one thing we often tell parents a lot too, is just, you know, kind of let the process happen, um, while you're continuing just to be supportive and so hard, so hard for parents to do. And I think one of the things that I see a lot, I'm curious to get your take on this is they basically try to put the fear of God in them that, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, if you don't pick up, if you don't do this, you're going to fail. You're not going to be able to get, like they throw all this stuff at them to try to motivate them to do it. I often see that pretty much every time backfire where now the kids are just so far down in the hole that they're like, there's no way out. I give up. So how do parents encourage without pressuring? Yeah. Oh, that's, (laughs) that's so tough because again, I think that sort of that, that parental almost reflexive response is to like apply that pressure, Mm -hmm. do things for them. Right. Because like we want our kids to succeed. Um, so I'm going to just kind of like pivot for a second and just say, you know, one of the things that in the individual component of school refusal, right. There's a huge part that is exposure-based treatment, which is where you're confronting the kind of that core ingredient, that theme that is most anxiety provoking to the individual. Like that's a massive part of that. But within that, there may be, okay, like they are avoiding the work because of that perfectionistic tendency to have it be a certain way. Um, So the individual and the clinician are often working together to kind of conquer some of those things, to do the work, to whatever it may be. And as a parent in that position, your job is more to just reinforce what is happening in the individual work to provide the, okay, like you have your plan. Um, you can provide again, support that. Yes. I recognize that this is hard and right. Not a, but, but an, and, you know, you can do this, right. There's a yeah. difference between saying like, everything's going to be fine. It's all good. We, we don't know that to be true. Right. But what we do yeah. know is that kids can be brave. They can do challenging things. They can push themselves. Um, so I would say, you know, to the parent, um, you know, don't, we don't want to try to just like instill the fear of whatever in them, because we know, yeah, that those fear tactics don't work, but again, coming back to that compassionate firmness, just help guide them support where necessary, you know, sometimes even asking like, is there anything that we can do to help you do this? Um, like that can be really helpful. Um, but yeah, just sort of allowing the process to happen. Yeah. What is the first thing a parent should do when they notice that their kids are starting to refuse school? Yeah. Um, you know, depending on the relationship with your teen, you know, you can always address it with them. And again, not in any sort of accusatory or like, how come you're not doing this? Or, you know, you need to go to school. 
but just be genuinely curious to having a conversation. Um, my experience working with teens is that they are pretty insightful and mm-hmm. have a solid relationship with your teen. Um, coming at it that way first before like bringing on the army of yeah. um, school providers and other people to you know figure it out. Um, we don't want to we don't want to create panic for anyone, yeah. right? Yeah. So just being yeah, genuinely curious, having a conversation, maybe even asking them what supports they may need. It could be as simple as, wow, like I'm really, you know, I'm not clicking with my biology teacher and they kind of intimidate me or like, yeah. I don't know how to ask for help. And so like, wow, what a way to really get in there just to kind of work on that together before we say, okay, we need individual, we need group, we need you know, school collaboration, we need all this stuff. So I would say if you can approach it with your teen, great. That's a, that's a great kind of first line of defense. Um, again, depending on the relationship you have with the school, even, um, you know, reaching out to, you know, an advisor or guidance counselor, if you're noticing, you know, that there's again, sort of maybe becoming a pattern. Um, but, you know, part of this treatment also is that making sure everyone is on board and on the same page. And the last thing we want to do is, you know, give the impression that the teen is somehow problematic and right. that things are, you know, they need to happen to them and not with them. Um, so personally, you know, both as a clinician and as a parent, you know, if you can talk to your, your teen about what it is that maybe you're observing, and again, not in any sort of accusatory way, um, that may be the first thing to, you know, kind of guide you where to go from there. If, if more treat if treatment or just like more supports are necessary or, you know, some other sort of problem solving. Yeah. And I, I love the whole, your pro- problem solving with your teen. It's not there being a problem. And now you've got to figure out how to solve their, them as the problem. It's they're struggling with something. They're going to know more than anyone else what they need. I think parents often feel like we know better than our kids. I have found that that's not true. Our kids know better than us what they need. Um, And so it's listening to them and problem solving with them. If we're working with the school, they need to be part of the working with the school. It's not like me and the school's working. And then we're going to tell you what the solution is. Because now it's probably some of the reason they're not going to school is they don't feel any control and they feel like they don't have any say. So I see this with kids too, who are like, they're basically, it's like a sit-in revolt. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't like school. I don't like that you're forcing me to do this. I don't like what I'm doing. So I'm just, I'm doing a (laughs) sit-in, right? No, that's, you're, you're absolutely right. And like one of the cool things about, you know, working collaboratively with parents in the school and the student is that, you know, it's not the, the school part of it itself, like it's not going to look the same for every single student, right? For right. some for some students, it's, you know, okay, they really need some sort of reconfiguration of like how homework is, is structured. Maybe it's the quantity of it. Maybe it's how, you know, they have block scheduling and they really could use whatever it is. Um, you can really boil down to like, what are the individual needs of the student and what is going to create the best environment for their success, right? Whether mm-hmm. that's they have access to, um, like they can leave class five minutes early to help transition to the next class, or they have um, sort of later deadlines for certain assignments, or maybe um, they eat lunch in a in a smaller room with you know a peer and like a favorite teacher. Um, these are just some examples of the ways that 
um, you can really get down to the nitty gritty. But again, like you need that student input of what is going to be helpful for them and not just throwing them with like, here are the things that we're going to do to kind of help you through this. Right. And, and the biggest thing that that does is it empowers them to be able to problem solve for themselves moving forward. They're like, okay, I have an issue. I don't know how to address it. The only way I know is to just avoid it. Yeah. But now we're going, there's other ways to do this. We're going to help guide you and show you and scaffold for you how to problem solve through this. And yeah. that is huge. You just like jogged my memory of something. That <laughs> oh, good. Say. Yeah, no, this is great. Um, you know, this is, you know, the cycle of anxiety is, is such a, I mean, this is not just for a school refusal, but this is for anxiety in general. But like when something makes us anxious, we tend to want to escape or avoid mm -hmm. it. And then the more we do that, we're just, we're seeing that, wow, like I can experience relief and I'm not stressed anymore. If I can get out of this, whew, thank goodness. Like, but that cycle keeps going, right? You've yeah. escaped so temporarily, but now it comes back even stronger, right? And you keep, you keep on this loop of just like anxiety, avoid, feel better. It comes back. And so by doing all of this kind of treatment where yeah, we're working together, we're doing exposure-based treatment again, where you're confronting kind of the thing that makes you feel most anxious. Um, we're, we're giving students that foundational, essentially life skill, yeah. right? Because if it's not, if it's school now, it may be the work presentation in 10 years, or it's going to be the, whatever it is that comes up. And so it's the same, it's the same foundation of like teaching them how to, Yes, you can be scared and uncomfortable about things, but discomfort doesn't hurt us, right? Yeah. We, we we think so much that, you know, we, anxiety is something we want to get rid of, but we have to remember that at its core, anxiety is something that we really need to survive, right? Like if a bear yeah. comes into the room, like our fight or flight system is going to activate to get us the heck out of there. So we say safe, right? But yeah. our livelihood, our, our, our health, our wellness, our safety is actually threatened there when it comes to school refusal, what they are feeling anxious about, right? That, that nervous system activation is the same as if there was a bear in the room, yep. but we know there's no threat, right? So it's, it's, it's a, we have to kind of work with them to reappraise their own kind of nervous system activation. It feels the same Yes, like in our brain. It feels like we're being attacked by the bear. It's the same okay. fear. Yeah. So understanding that too like it doesn't seem scary but in their brain they're treating it as if it is life or death that's how well, it feels if you, if you think about like a smoke alarm that goes off in your house right a smoke alarm is going to go off whether you've taken a really hot shower and there's a lot of steam or you've burnt a piece of toast or if your entire house is on fire right yeah. so it, it sounds the same but it's the interpretation of that that makes such a difference so the work that we do both again with parents with the individual um, is is kind of learning their cues that as they're doing these exposures, as parents are setting limits and their their whole system feels dysregulated, right? They're yeah. comfortable. They're interpreting all of these things as really scary and and unmanageable. That they are manageable. That they are approachable. And that we just kind of need to like recalibrate what's happening on the inside. Yeah. This is, this is all great. And it's all about working with your teen and not trying to push or pull them. And I think we, and you said the panic word, right? I think who panics first is the parent. We yeah. panic big time because all of a sudden we just see our whole future of our child crumbling in front of them. And we go to this place of, if they don't go to school now, 
everything's ruined for them in the future. And, you know, I think we know sitting back realistically, that's not true, but I think they, we get that feeling. And so people start panicking that if I don't solve this right this second, it's, it's, it's on a path to nowhere. And we got to take a deep breath and take the time to solve it. And it's going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. We, we panic. It, it, It reminds me to kind of, you're saying like, well, what parents can do. And I would say, you know, your own kind of like anxiety regulation and management is crucial because we don't want parents, like you were just saying to like, let your worries and stresses about your child's future kind of be put onto them. And now we've created sort of another issue. Um, I will say clinically just in, in my own clinical practice and in, you know, some of my colleagues that we know that yes, it is, it is very important to kind of minimize school refusal behavior because time out of school can mean a lot of things. Um, that being said, individuals who've, you know, been school refusals in the past have gone on to graduate top of their class, get into whatever, you know, kind of post-secondary, either whether it's college or training, vocational service, um, they, they go on to do great things because these, these teens are remarkable, right? They're yeah. so smart. They're so resilient. Um, and so one year of struggle, two years, maybe even, um, it doesn't, it's not the end of their, their lives. So that's Mm -hmm. really important for parents to remember too, that this is, this is a pretty big hurdle and it's going to be a bump in their story. Um, but with the right supports and everything else, like there can be still the the desired outcome that they're looking for. Yeah. I'm even going to throw a little twist and say it's an opportunity because it is an opportunity (laughs) to help them develop really needed, resilient perseverance, all of those skills and problem solving skills. So no, we don't want our kids to do that. But I think if we're in that situation, we're like, okay, this is the, this is when I have the opportunity to help them develop these skills, which are actually more important than their GPA when it comes to succeeding at life. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're so right. And, and yes, for parents just to recognize that like the GPA, the number, the, how many APs their kid is taking, like, that's not the most important thing. It's important. I'm not going to lie. Like it's, it's important in the, the world that we live in today, but what you were saying just now of the, the opportunity to give them the skill all of that. Um, that's the important part. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how do people find you? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I say that only, um, I'm more than, yeah, I'll share my information. Um, unfortunately as a, another product of the pandemic is that, um, I, I wish there were a thousand more providers who did the work that we do and one of the things that it's really important to me and to also the practice that I'm at is that we do a lot of trainings and consultations with schools and parents because we want to get this information out there. I, I feel yeah. so grateful to be able to be talking about this to your audience today. Um, but there, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are struggling and there's not as many providers. I will yes, say that um, is very true. Yes. But, um, but yes, I, um, I practice out of our Rockville location, um, doing both in-person and telehealth based services. Um, we also have an office in McLean, Virginia, which is in like the Northern Fairfax County, um, area. I think it's Fairfax. Um, so that is, that is where I am. Um, 
I can, I think you have some of my information that I'm more than happy to share yeah. with the listeners and, um, but yeah, there's, again, there's, but, you know, before jumping to, you know, my kid needs to be in treatment or doing anything again, starting with a conversation, seeing if you can even just work with, you know, with them, the school yeah. to up with the plan. And then if it becomes that there's that, you know, it, in, as psychologists, we always talk about, you know, if we're doing diagnoses, you know, the DSM where there's clinically significant distress or impairment, right? So that clinically significant distress or impairment, like if you see that there's a, 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 a serious struggle in sort of just like everyday kind of things and, and there becomes like more of a challenge to um, just function overall. Yeah right? It's starting to really eke into other parts of your teen's life. Like that may be, you know, kind of an indicator that again, more support is, is really needed. Yeah. And it sounds like starting with your school is a good place to starting with your school. Yep. Um, starting with your school, starting with your teen, um, you know, Oh, I meant be after you deal, after you talk with your teen, not deal. That's a deal word. After you talk with your teen, working with a school with your team. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you're, I'm clarifying that. Yes. 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 You can start with the school again. You know, if there's um, a teacher or someone that, you know, has a good relationship with, maybe they can like come up with a plan yeah. to see if there's any way for them to either get caught up on work or, you know, address the concern that is at school. But yeah, after that, if it seems that it's, um, you know, they're just yeah not going, um, can't seem to get up the whatever the the umph to go to school, then that may be sort of an indication that, you know, more professional help is needed. Yeah. So okay. What is the one biggest takeaway you want parents to walk away with from this episode? Oh do I have to pick this one? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, you can have two. Yeah. Um <laughs> Oh gosh, the biggest takeaway, you know, kind of to what we've talked about that again, it's not just, you know, your kid doesn't want to go to school. There's something else that's driving them. And so we want to treat that and be really effective doing that. Um, so I would say like, that's huge. Cause so many times I hear parents like, they just won't go. I don't know what to do. Right. I'm just yeah. I'm so over it. Um, and so like, that's a big part of it. Um, the collaboration, right? So working together, this doesn't have to be one person driving the ship of, you know, I got to just get them back in somehow. And this is all falling on me. Like there is a community and a, and a, you know, support around this for a reason. Um, and, and again, I've mentioned it sort of in, in talking, but, you know, exposure-based treatments really is crucial yeah. to, effective school refusal treatment. We can talk all day long about what it is that is stressful or not how it's supposed to be or whatever it is, but unless we actually confront those factors through exposure, right? So exposure meaning like you're purposely gonna face the thing that makes you feel uncomfortable and then learn ways to withstand that, tolerate it, Mm -hmm. see that, oh, okay, like the outcome that I thought was gonna happen actually doesn't. I can actually push through this. Um, that's the way that we're going to see anxiety reduce over time. Um, and again, like strengthening that muscle of like, wow, I can do this. So, um, you know, if, if you're looking, if parents are out there kind of looking for someone who treats this, you know, a cognitive behavioral therapist who does exposure-based treatment, um, that's going to be, um, 
that's going to be where you're going to find your most effective treatment. I love it. That's, that's really helpful information. And I'm sure a lot of people are taking frantically taking notes, um, especially with the school year approaching. They're already, parents are already gearing up for this because I think a lot of them at the end of the year, many had just given up at the end of the year and yeah. are hoping that it's all better this year. Um, so what I will say to that very quickly is, you know, in this area, um, in the DC area, we start school in another like two, two and a half weeks. So, you know, now's a great time to get back into some of those school routines, mm-hmm. right? start bumping yeah. back bedtimes so that, you know, if your teen was going to bed at, you know, 2 AM, they need to go back, you know, start, start incrementally bumping that back. Um, kind of getting back into just the groove and the rhythms of a school year. Um, if there was some possible refusal behavior at the end of the year, maybe even just like doing some drive-bys by the school, Mm -hmm. um, starting to talk about like what it's going to look like with extracurriculars and balancing homework, just not as any, again, any sort of scare tactic, but just to ease that transition from no rules, summer, lots of free time, you know, getting back into the school year. So that's just one other thing that parents can do with their teens is just to kind of reintroduce those rhythms and routines of the school year before school starts. I love that. I think the other thing I'll throw in there is let's take the school year slow. Let's not jump in the first day asking about homework because that's where the pressure comes. (laughs) You know, it's let's, let's slowly ease and let them ease into it. Um, I couldn't agree more. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Beanstalk. I'm so grateful you could join us today. It was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thank you parents for taking time out of your busy day to spend with us. I really appreciate you too. If you want more information on how to best support your teens, check out my 10 top tips for raising teens at askdrcam.com slash parenting tips. Until next time, stay curious. Remember, there's always more to the story than what you see. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today on Parenting Teens with Dr. Cam. Make sure to visit my website, www.parentingteens.com askdrcam.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show again. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes and hey, why not share it with a friend too? Be sure to tune in to my next episode. And remember, parenting teens may not be easy, but with my help, it can be a whole lot easier than this.